0: Chapter Two of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter Two The American People. Quote, From biological truths, it may be inferred that the eventual mixture of the allied varieties of the Aryan race forming the population will produce a finer type of man than has hitherto existed, and a type of man more plastic, more adaptable, more capable of undergoing the modifications needful for complete social life. I think that whatever difficulties they may have to surmount, and whatever tribulations they may have to pass through, the Americans may reasonably look forward to a time when they will have produced a civilization grander than any the world has known. End quote. Herbert Spencer. Fortunately for the American people, they are essentially British. I trust they are ever more to remain truly grateful for this crowning mercy. The assertion of the historian of the Norman Conquest that the chief difference between the Briton and the American is that the former has crossed but one ocean, the latter two, is something more than a mere dictum. It is capable of actual demonstration. Two and a half centuries ago, the American population was British with a very small intermixture of French and Dutch. In 1776, when the colonies informed the world of the great truth that all men are created equal, And set up an independent republic without king or aristocracy or any other kind of the political evils of the past, the population had reached three millions. In 1840, it had grown almost entirely by natural increase to fourteen millions of white people. There were then three million colored slaves. That these fourteen million whites were almost purely of British origin is shown by the small amount of immigration up to that date. Previous to 1820, when immigration returns were first made, it is estimated that the total number of immigrants to that date had not exceeded a quarter of a million, and most of these were British. Between 1820 and 1830 there arrived only 144,000, and during the next decade 600,000, nearly all British, for the German and other continental exodus had not begun. It was not till after 1840 that immigration began on a large scale. Beginning then in 1840 with an almost purely British race, let us trace the ingredients which up to the present time have gone to make the American of today, differentiated as he is, and yet only British, with a difference. The total number of immigrants to the United States between 1840 and 1880 was a little more than nine millions, fifty-five percent of whom were British. Just note this surprising truth. Led into the rivulets which swell the American population from all other parts of the world, and out of the little British Isles comes a stream mightier than all the others in its flow. Glorious mother, with her own heart's blood, she feeds her child. The position may be stated in round figures in the following form. These figures are arrived at by taking the number of native whites and of immigrants each year beginning in 1840 and adding 3%, which is about the natural rate of increase. The number of native births and of immigrants arriving the following year is then added, 3% again allowed, and so on up to 1880. The figures have been carefully verified, and it is believed that by this mode the truth has been reached, since the census of 1880 shows 43,478,000 whites, or slightly beyond 3% per annum. Of almost purely British origin in 1840, 14,196,000. Increased at 3% per annum to 1880, 11,850,000 british immigration 1840 to 1880 with natural increase estimated at 3% per annum upon each year's arrivals up to 1880 9,175,000 other than british immigration 1840 to 1880 with increase estimated at 3% per annum as before 7,506,000 total 42,727,000 Thus the American of today is certainly more than four-fifths British in his ancestry. The other fifth is principally German. For more than three millions of these educated, thrifty, and law-abiding citizens were received between 1840 and 1880, almost as many as from Ireland. From all other countries other than Britain and Germany, the immigration is scarcely worth taking into account. For during the forty years noted, the total number was little more than a million. France and Sweden and Norway contributed about 300,000 each, but this non-British blood has even less than its proportional influence in forming the national character, especially in its political phase, because the language, literature, laws, and institutions are English. It may, however, safely be averred that the small mixture of foreign races is a decided advantage to the new race, for even the British race is improved by a slight cross. Give me a British foundation, the beef-eater to begin with, the stolid, or, if you will, stupid mind of the Philistine, of dear Matthew Arnold's aversion, only partially open to the sweetness and light of life, slow as an elephant, tough as a rhinoceros, awkward as a mule, and just as cantankerous, but possessed of an honest, courageous, well-meaning, and, above all, truth-telling nature. A strange combination of the lion and the lamb, this islander, savage and sentimentalist in one. It's a fine day, let's kill something, roars the savage, his daily remark for months at a time, and his daily practice, too, for even the best-educated Briton, (parentheses) with a few exceptions of the Spencer, Balfour, and Arnold type, parentheses, has not yet risen in his recreations beyond shooting half-tame birds. For the fun of the thing! And yet their typical hero, dying on the decks of the victory, murmurs, Kiss me, Hardy, as sweetly as a woman, and passes to the abode of heroes with a warrior's kiss on his lips. And Nelson's antipode, Fat Jack Falstaff, to show how extremes meet, so true to nature is Shakespeare, a babble de green fields, as he left us. There's genuine tenderness and love in all these island mastiffs, and theirs is the one trait par excellence, without which we may say to a man or race, unstable as water thou shalt not excel. The Briton is stable what he sets about to do, he does, or dies in the attempt. Concentration is his peculiarity. He may not gain very fast, but he is a veritable ratchet-wheel. Every inch he gains, he holds. There is no slip back in him, nor does he lose in the race by lateral motion. The tortoise beats the hare, of course. The hare zigzags. No zigzag in John Bull. HE DOES NOT LIKE TO GO ROUND A MOUNTAIN, EVEN WHEN IT IS THE EASIER WAY. HE DIGS THROUGH. THE HUNTER, WHO FOUND TEMPORARY SAFETY WHEN ATTACKED BY A BEAR AND CATCHING IT BY THE TAIL AND SWINGING IT ROUND WITH THE WOULD-BE TOO AFFECTIONATE MONSTER, CALLED TO HIS COMPANIONS TO COME AND HELP HIM TO LET GO. BY THIS SIGN WE KNOW HE WASN'T A BRITISHER, FOR IT NEVER OCCURS TO THE TRUE Briton THAT IN THE NATURE OF THINGS HE CAN VOLUNTARILY LET GO OF ANYTHING he would have been in with that bear for the whole war, bound to fight it out on that line if it took all summer, as General Grant put it. And note it, fellow-citizens, he was a Grant. There came in the Scottish blood of that tenacious, self-contained, stubborn force which kept pegging away, always certain of final victory, because he knew he could not divert himself, even if he wished, from the task he had undertaken.' his very nature forbade retreat. Thus stood the sturdy, moody Scotch-American of steady purpose, fighting through to the finish with no let-go in his composition as that English-American Lincoln did, for Uncle Abe's family came from Norfolk in the wider field of national policy when he, too, quote, kept his course unshaked of motion, end quote. This master trait of the British race shows resplendently in Lincoln the greatest political genius of our era, greatest judged either by the inherent qualities of the man or by the material results of his administration. Even Bismarck's reorganization of Germany dealt with far less imposing, far less gigantic forces than those which Lincoln was called upon to control nor has Bismarck achieved the highest degree of political success. He has not harmonized, fused into one united whole, the people he consolidated, as Lincoln did. His weapons have been those of force alone, blood and iron his cry, even in peace, a master solely by brute force. Lincoln was as generous, as conciliatory, as gentle in peace As he was always sad and merciful, yet ever immovable in war. Bismarck excited the fears of the masses, Lincoln won their love. One, a rude conqueror only, the other, not only that, but also the guider of the highest and best aspirations of his people. With monarchical Bismarck, might made right, with republican Lincoln, right made might that's the difference hence the fame of one is to be ephemeral that of the other immortal the american fortunately has in the german french and other races which have contributed to his make-up the lacking ingredients which confer upon him a much less savage and more placable nature than that of the original Briton. to this slight strain of foreign blood and to the more stimulating effects of his brighter climate, which caused an English friend once to remark that temperance is no virtue in the American since he breathes champagne, together with the more active play of forces in a new land under political institutions which make the most of men, we must attribute the faculty observed in him by Matthew Arnold of thinking straighter and seeing clearer and also of acting more promptly than the original stock, for the American is nothing, if not logical. He gets hold of the underlying principle, and, reasoning from that, he goes ahead to conclusion. He wants everything laid down by square and compass, and in political institutions something that is fair all around, neither advantages nor disadvantages, but universal equality. Toleration in the Britain is truly admirable. The leading radical and the leading Tory Democrat are found dining with each other, perhaps may be found in the same cabinet one of these days, since extremes meet. Well, the American is even more tolerant. Politics never divide people. Once in four years he warms up and takes sides, opposing hosts confront each other, and a stranger would naturally think that only violence could result— whichever side won. The morning after the election his arm is upon his opponent's shoulder and they are chafing each other. All becomes as calm as a summer sea. He fights rebels for four years and as soon as they lay down their arms invites them to his banquets. Not a life is sacrificed to feed his revenge. Jefferson Davis, educated at the National Military Academy and a deserter from the state, is allowed to drag on his weary life in merited oblivion. Not a drop of martyr's blood embitters the wayward south and breeds the wish for revenge. We shall give mankind, said Secretary Seward, an example of such magnanimity as has never been seen. He had no monarchy, no aristocracy, no military class urging sacrifice to appease his offended majesty. He had the democracy behind him, with its generous instincts preaching forgiveness, and hence no drop of blood was shed. The American never cherishes resentment, but is willing always, not only to forgive, but to forget, the latter not less than half the struggle. For as our humorist very justly observes, quote, The man who forgives but don't forget is trying to settle with the Lord for fifty cents on the dollar. End quote. Brother Jonathan pays the full dollar. The generally diffused love of music which characterizes America is largely the outcome of the German and continental contingent, for, with all the phlegm of the Briton, there is in the German a part of his nature touched to fine issues. He loves music, is highly sociable, very domestic at home, and at his best in the bosom of his family. Most valuable of all, he is well educated and has excellent habits, is patient, industrious, peaceful, and law-abiding. Another important characteristic of this race is the alacrity with which they adopt American ideas. The vast majority have already done so ere they sailed westward. The German loves his native country, but hates its institutions. Prince Bismarck's yoke is neither light nor easy. Universal military service, the blood tax of monarchies, is calculated to set the best minds among the bone and sinew to thinking over the political situation and, O America, how bright and alluring you appear to the downtrodden masses of Europe, with your equal laws, equal privileges, and the halo of peace surrounding your brow! What a bribe you offer to the most loyal-minded man to renounce his own country to share a heritage so fair!" The immigrant may not succeed in the new land, or succeed as the Irishman did, who replied to the inquiry of his friend as to whether the republic was the country for the poor man. "'It is, indeed. Look at me. When I came, I hadn't a rag on my back, and now I'm just covered with them.' Many new arrivals fail. Many would succeed better in their old homes. America is only a favored land for the most efficient. Drones have no place in her hive but in whatever the emigrant may fail, whether in securing wealth or home, whether he remain poor or lose health, whether his lot be happy or miserable, there remains one great prize which cannot escape him, one blessing so bright, so beneficent, as to shed upon the darkest career the glory of its entrancing rays, and compensate for the absence of material good. Upon every exile from home falls the boon of citizenship, equal with the highest. The Republic may not give wealth or happiness. She has not promised these. It is the freedom to pursue these, not their realization, which the Declaration of Independence claims. But if she does not make the immigrant happy or prosperous, this she can do and does do for everyone. She makes him a citizen, a man." The Frenchman is not a migrating animal. It is much to the credit of America that it has attracted even 300,000 of these homekeeping keeping gulls. The number is so small that their influence upon the national character cannot be otherwise than trifling. They are the cooks and the epicures of the world, and to them America may well be grateful for the standard maintained by the Delmonicos, the French restaurants of the principal cities. No country has experienced so clearly as this, till recently, while God sent the victuals, the cooks came from another source. These were not from France, nor under French influence in the former days. Even yet, west of Chicago, the cookery is shameful, but thanks to the Frenchmen, the better modes travel westward rapidly. Nature never furnished to any nation so great a variety of food, yet no civilized people ever cooked it so badly." In women's dress, for the few male dudes affect English fashions, our Gaelic brethren give evidence of their influence in the direction of good taste. The verdict of my English friends invariably is that American women dress so well, so much better than her English sister. We must credit the French citizen with this flattering verdict. No other race than the French and the German, including Swedes and Norwegians, who are also Teutons, in parentheses, has reached these shores in significant numbers to impress even a trace of its influence upon the national character. The inability of the American race to maintain itself and its dependence upon immigration for its future have furnished texts for certain foreign writers, but the facts are against them. Of the 56 million Americans now living, seven-eighths, or 49 millions, are native-born. One-eighth, or seven millions, first saw the light in foreign lands. The colored population is about equal to the foreign-born. The census returns show that the rate of increase among native-born Americans has been as follows. 1850 to 1860, 32 and a third percent. 1870 to 1880, 31 and a quarter percent. In no European country does the rate of increase approach these figures, which are about the average rate of increase for the entire population of America, native and foreign, which proves that the Native American is as prolific as the foreign-born in America, while both are more prolific than the inhabitants of any European country. Notwithstanding the enormous number of immigrants which yearly flow into the country, the native births are seven to eight times greater in number than the foreign arrivals. Besides this, as we have seen, more than half of the foreign arrivals are British, so that the American people are ever becoming more purely British in origin. The value to the country of the annual foreign influx, however, is very great indeed. This is more apt to be under than overestimated. During the ten years between 1870 and 1880, the number of immigrants averaged 280,000 per annum. In one year, 1882, nearly three times that number, 789,000, arrived. 60%, 473,400, of this mass were adults between 15 and 40 years of age. These adults were surely worth $1,500 or 300 pounds each, for in former days, inefficient slaves sold for this sum, making a money value of $710 million, 142 million pounds, to which may be safely added $1,000, or 200 pounds each, or $315 million, 63 million pounds, for the remaining 40% of the host. Further, it is estimated that every immigrant brings in cash an average of $125, 25 pounds. The cash value of immigrants upon this basis for the year of 1882 exceeded $1,125,000,000 two hundred twenty five million pounds true eighteen eighty two was an exceptional year but the average yearly augmentation of the republic's wealth from immigrants who seek its shores to escape the enormous taxation and military laws of monarchical governments and to obtain under republican institutions entire political equality is now more than twice as great as the total product of all the gold and silver mines in the world were the owners of every gold and silver mine in the world compelled to send to the treasury in Washington, at their own expense, every ounce of the precious metals produced, the national wealth would not be enhanced one-half as much as it is from the golden stream which flows into the country every year through immigration. But the value of these peaceful invaders does not consist solely in their numbers or the wealth which they bring. To estimate them aright, we must take into consideration also the superior character of those who immigrate. As the people who laid the foundation of the American Republic were extremists, fanatics, if you will, men of advanced views intellectually, morally, and politically, men whom Europe had rejected as dangerous, so the majority of immigrants today are men who leave their native land from dissatisfaction with their surroundings, and who seek here, under new conditions, THE OPPORTUNITY FOR DEVELOPMENT DENIED THEM AT HOME. THE OLD AND THE DESTITUTE, THE IDLE AND THE CONTENTED DO NOT BRAVE THE WAVES OF THE STORMY ATLANTIC, BUT SIT HELPLESSLY AT HOME, PERHAPS BEWAILING THEIR HARD FATE, OR, WHAT IS STILL MORE SAD TO SEE, AIMLESSLY CONTENTED WITH IT. THE IMMIGRANT IS THE CAPABLE, ENERGETIC, AMBITIOUS, DISCONTENTED MAN, THE sectary, THE REFUGEE, THE PERSECUTED, THE exile FROM DESPOTISM, who, longing to breathe the air of equality, resolves to tear himself away from the old home with its associations to found in hospitable America a new home under equal and just laws, which ensure to him, and what perhaps counts with him and his wife for more, ensure also to their children the full measure of citizenship, making them free men in a free state, possessed of every right and privilege. The true value of the men who emigrate is well understood by the ruling classes of the old world who make every effort to prevent the exodus of so many able-bodied citizens this is not from any fear of a depletion of population at home for it has been conclusively shown that emigration does not diminish the rate of increase in the country emigrated from provided of course the drain be not in excess of the natural fecundity of the human race but rather from a well-grounded knowledge that it takes away from the best of the population, the very bone and sinew of the race. Fortunately for America, these efforts have proved of little avail, and the steadily flowing stream of Britons, Teutons, and Latins is assuming greater proportions as the years roll on, and will be limited in future not by the immigrating capacity of European nations, but by the superior attractions which a republic can offer. So long as America presents to the world the spectacle of a country with a strong yet free government where social order prevails, where taxation is at a minimum, where education is every man's birthright, where higher rewards are offered to labor and enterprise than elsewhere, and the equality of political rights are secured, so long will the best of the workers seek its shores. A portion of the stream may be diverted in time to other countries when such offer equal advantages. Political and material, but the United States have the advantage in this, that the current has set this way for more than half a century, and immigrants are apt to follow the course of those who have preceded them and those already established, attracting their friends and relatives, and often providing the means for them to cross the ocean. Besides being ambitious, energetic, and industrious, the immigrant is a physically strong and healthy man. The halt, the deaf, and the blind are not prompted to leave their European homes, nor does the confirmed invalid often seek a grave in a foreign land. This influence, which has been potent since the days of the Pilgrim Fathers, has resulted in a freedom from physical defect in America that is very noteworthy. Statistics show that the proportion of blind, deaf, and dumb to the total population is less than half what it is in Europe. The capacity of America to absorb the population which is flowing into her, as well as the great natural increase of her people, cannot be more strikingly illustrated than by a comparison. Belgium has 482 inhabitants to the square mile. Britain, 290. The United States, exclusive Alaska, less than 14. In the ten years between 1870 and 1880, 11.5 11.5 millions were added to the population of America, yet these only added three persons to each square mile of territory. And should America continue to double her population every 30 years, instead of every 25 as hitherto, 70 years must elapse before she will obtain the density of Europe. The population will then reach 290 millions. If the density of Britain ever be obtained, there will be upwards of a thousand million Americans, for at the present every Briton has two acres, and every American 44 acres of land is his estate. These forecasts are not only possible, they are extremely probable. The progress made since 1880 in the settlement of new regions is putting every preceding period into the shade. It is simply marvelous, and even those who are in the midst of it have difficulty in realizing how great it is look at the great northwest. Scarcely a decade has passed since it was represented as a barren, icy plain, wild, inhospitable, and scarcely habitable. The railway has changed it by a wizard's touch. Minnesota has more than a million inhabitants. The population of Dakota has quadrupled in five years and is now half a million. Towns are springing up with magical rapidity. Its wheat crop last year was 30 million bushels, Twice as great as the whole crop of Egypt. Montana is barely known by name in England. Last year, in twelve short months, her population increased from eighty five thousand to one hundred and ten thousand, her cattle interests from four hundred and seventy five thousand to eight hundred and fifty thousand, and her output of minerals from less than ten million dollars to more than twenty three million dollars. Ten million pounds. Two million pounds to four million six hundred thousand pounds. Her taxable property is fifty million dollars. Ten million pounds. Wyoming, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon are being developed almost as rapidly. Other parts of the West have advanced at even a greater pace. The aggregate population of seven states tributary to Kansas City increased in one year, 1879 to 1880, from fewer than five and a half millions to more than seven millions since 1880 the value of cattle in the same region has advanced from nine million dollars to fourteen million five hundred thousand dollars one million eight hundred thousand pounds to two million nine hundred thousand pounds and of sheep from six million dollars to nine million five hundred thousand dollars one million two hundred thousand pounds to one million nine hundred thousand pounds at these rates of advance the wild west is rapidly becoming a thing of the past and in a few years it will be a thickly settled land figures are poor aids to the comprehension of great truths the comparative chart printed herewith by kind permission of its author mr edward atkinson will help the reader to a conception of the possibilities of this great continent. It represents the area of Texas in conjunction with the areas of other American states and European countries. How petty some of the latter seem beside majestic Texas! And yet Texas is but one of the forty-six territorial divisions of the Republic. Observe Montenegro, which at various times has excited all Europe and provoked enormous bloodshed. It would hardly make a fly speck on the map of Texas, and note that the whole United Kingdom could be planted in this one state of the Union and still leave plenty of room around it. Notice too, gentle reader, how all the world's cotton could be grown in the state of Texas alone, without greatly affecting its capacity for other productions. It is scarcely overdrawing the picture to imagine that in a few decades two or three hundred million Republicans will be living in amity, under one government, on the great American continent. In view of these startling probabilities, it would seem advisable that the statesmen of the old home, instead of bestowing so much of their attention on the petty states of Europe, should look thoughtfully westward, sometimes to the doings of their own kith and kin, who are rapidly building up a power which none can hope to rival. We must not pass without mention our fellow citizens of African descent who, as we have seen, are equal in number to the entire foreign population, one-eighth of the whole. These, as the world knows, were all slaves a few years ago, but Abraham Lincoln, with one stroke of the pen, raised them from the condition of slavery to that of free men." They now exercise a suffrage just as other citizens do. There is not a privilege possessed by any citizen which is not theirs. The English poet says, Slaves cannot breathe in England. If their lungs receive our air, that moment they are free. They touch our country, and their shackles fall. No more can they exist in England's childland. and the Declaration of Independence, asserting the freedom and equality of men, is no longer a mockery. Grave apprehensions were entertained that freedom suddenly granted to these poor slaves would be abused. Those best acquainted with their habits, the southern slaveholders, predicted, as a result of freedom, universal idleness, riot, and dissipation. It was asserted that the negro would not work save under the lash of the overseer. None of these gloomy predictions have been fulfilled. Every one of them has been falsified." there is now more cotton grown than ever, and at less cost. Under the reign of freedom, the material resources of the South have increased faster than ever before. Indeed, so surprised were most Americans by the result of the last census that it was insisted mistakes had been made. The figures could not be right, and in some districts the enumerations were made a second time, with the result of verifying the former figures." The number of congressmen to each state is determined every 10 years by the population shown by the census. When the census of 1880 was made, the general expectation was that the northern states would increase their proportionate representation. But the southern states not only held their own, but actually gained. The 98 southern representatives were increased by 13, while the 195 northern representatives gained only 18, only half of the southern's ratio of increase even the unexampled growth of the northwestern states was insufficient to give the northern states a proportionately increased legislative power so much for freedom versus slavery the universal testimony is that the former slaves rapidly developed the qualities of freemen and exhibit in a surprising degree the capacity to manage their own affairs many of them at once arranged with their former masters to work a part of the plantation upon shares. Others bargained for the purchase of strips of land. They are now quite orderly and well-behaved, and much more industrious than before. It seems to the writer, but yesterday, since he was compelled to listen to arguments from good men in favor of the system of slavery, as he is yet doomed sometimes to hear defenses of monarchy and aristocracy, and to hear them contend that it was the best for the black race." Their contentedness and happiness under masters were always boldly asserted. A well-known judge in Ohio was noted for his defense of slavery upon the ground that the slaves knew what was best for themselves, and should be allowed to remain in the condition which admittedly brought them a degree of happiness seldom, if ever, attained by laborers in the North. His conversion to the opposite opinion was suddenly brought about by an interview with a runaway who had crossed the Ohio River from Kentucky AND ENTERED THE VILLAGE IN WHICH OUR FRIEND RESIDED, SAID THE JUDGE TO THE FUGITIVE. WHAT DID YOU RUN AWAY FOR? WELL, JUDGE, WANTED TO BE FREE. OH, WANTED TO BE FREE, DID YOU? BAD MASTER, I SUPPOSE. NO, VERY GOOD MAN, massa. YOU HAD TO WORK TOO HARD, THEN. OH, NO, FAIR DAY'S WORK. WELL, YOU HADN'T A GOOD HOME? HADN'T I, THOUGH. YOU SHOULD SEE in MY PRETTY CABIN IN KENTUCKY. WELL, YOU DIDN'T GET ENOUGH TO EAT? Oh, golly, now get enough to eat in Kentucky. Plenty to eat. The judge, somewhat annoyed, You had a good master, plenty to eat, wasn't overworked, a good home. I don't see what on earth you wanted to run away for. Well, judge, I left the situation down there open. You can go right down and get it. The result was a five-dollar note, given to help the unreasonable slave who had left well-being behind to become a man. Henceforth the judge was an ardent abolitionist, recognizing that, Quote, Freedom has a thousand charms to show that slaves, however contented, never know. End quote. The proportion of the colored to the white element necessarily grows less and less. In 1790 it was 27% of the whole. In 1830 it had fallen to 18%. In 1880 it was only 13%. While the total white population of the country has risen from 10 and a half to 43 and a half millions in fifty years, The number of colored population has only risen from two and a quarter to six and a half millions. This steady decrease results from two causes. First, the colored race receives no immigrants, but is restricted wholly to native increase for its growth, and, second, it has been proved that although their birth rate is greater than that of whites, it is more than balanced by their higher death rate. The increase of colored people from 1860 to 1880 was but 48% against 61% increase of the whites. It is too soon to judge whether, with superior knowledge and more provident habits flowing from freedom, this excessive death rate will not be considerably reduced, but the conclusion seems unavoidable that the colored race cannot hold its own numerically against the whites and must fall farther and farther behind. Adaptive as man is, We can hardly expect the hotter climate of the southern states, in which the colored people live, to produce as hardy a race as that of the cooler states of the North. We close, then, showing in the Republic a race essentially British in origin, but fast becoming more and more American in birth, the foreign-born elements seeking into insignificance, and destined soon to become of no greater relative magnitude, perhaps, in proportion to the native-born American than the foreign-born residents of Britain are at the present to the native-born. The American Republican can never be other in blood and nature than a true Briton, a real chip off the old block, a new edition of the original work, and as in the manner of new editions, revised and improved, and, like his prototype in the Thousand and One Ways, some of them grotesque in their manifestations, which link the daughter to the mother, who, seen together, impress beholders not so much as two separate and distinct individualities as two members of one grand family end of chapter 2 the american people